Hey, good morning, church. Good morning. I have the privilege of um, introducing our guest preacher this morning. Um, you know, it, it is not lost on us that the average age of our elders at elders at our church is like 34, uh, 33. And one of the ways we we bolster the inevitable blind spots and fragility and weaknesses that we will have is uh, seeking out older, godlier people who can speak into us directly and lovingly. And for maybe eight years, Pastor Rick has been that for many of us. Uh, Rick Shank is a um, former pastor for 34 years, 35 years, about as long as I've been alive. He's been married for 45 years, um, which is longer than I've been alive. Uh, he's got uh, a lot of degrees after his name, but most importantly, he's uh, a man who's like Jesus, and he loves God with all of his heart, and he loves people well. And uh, he's very much like a Paul for many of us. Um, a lot of us uh, took classes from him at Bethlehem Seminary. Um, I got to TA for him, and he he continually meets with us. He's met with us through dark nights of our soul and our church. So even though you have not met him, um, he has been in the background supporting us and serving us and serving you um, in, in dark times in our church. And so it is a really great pleasure to have uh, Rick share with us this morning. He's also written a book, several books, but one of them is on marriage. And as we've been preparing the this series on Genesis, we looked at the different passages and who should take what. And I called Rick because Rick's preached through Genesis like three times and memorized a lot of Genesis word for word. So I was like, he probably knows Genesis better than us. And so I was like, Rick, if you were to preach, what would it be? And he, without skipping a beat, it was this passage. And so it, it would be a, a loss for you if it was me preaching or one of us preaching, I think. This morning. So, um, without uh, further ado, would you uh, honor and welcome uh, our brother Rick as he's going to preach the word? It's Rick Shane. Actually, Sam, I'm going to ask right there, would you pray for me, even though we should be praying for you and your family? Uh, Sam has just escaped from the ER and a uh, long night uh, with his family, but we yeah, pray for me. Yeah, let's do this. It's too weird. Yeah, that's right. I should have said that up here. Father in heaven, we thank you for your son, Jesus. And we thank you for your adopted son, Rick, whom you love and delight in. And for years, you have been faithful to him. You've been faithful to his marriage with Lynn and his parenting. And many, many dark nights and many, many triumphs. You've been faithful through it all. Help us learn from him. This morning, through your word, by your spirits, help us receive, strengthen our marriages, strengthen the singles of our, of our church, strengthen the widows of our church through this word. Because your word is the one that does work, not a man. So help us humbly receive and learn, empower him richly by your spirit with the strength that you supply and may preach with power and helpfulness. Help us receive. Thank you, Lord, for this brother. Bless him for many more years. In Jesus' name. Amen. It is good to be here with you. I wish you could be here this morning. She has duties at our own church today, Bethlehem South. 
Um, but I do love your elders, Daniel and Ross and Sharp and, uh, and Sam, who I have known for eight years. And uh, what a privilege. And Scott. And Scott. And the list goes on. But I was thinking elders. I thought about just did elders, but then where's Sharp's name right there? Always get in trouble when you mention names. I do feel a deep need for Sam to be praying for me this morning as I come before you. This is a privilege, this text, though it's one I guess did memorize, it's one that I love, but as you know, it is so much deeper and bigger and older than me, and the God who's behind it is the one that we need to see this morning. Because marriage, as wonderful as it is, is one of the hardest And this text, I'm going to say, a surprise to many, is a key text on marriage. Not because marriage is important and God talks about marriage here, so we get our Bible and we, we look. Where's marriage text? But as I understand it, and as I hope you will see it, it is the conclusion and climax to these two stories of creation. It is not like after creation, oh, then marriage. It's like creation, creation, and marriage is fireworks. It's where God has been driving. It's the, it's the grand finale of what it means for him to create if I understand it. Now, before the text, I think I need to address the elephant in the room. We've already mentioned that. Not a few of you who gathered here to worship may be disappointed that we're talking about marriage. Your disappointment could come because you are or were wounded by marriage. Your own that has disappointed you, or that of your parents, which failed to be the nurturing marriage you needed and deserved, you can tell that to God. He might not disagree with you. Perhaps you desire marriage, but God has not permitted that. You are single not by choice. Widowed, or maybe you're never married. This includes today kids that are too young to marry and say, this is for me. Perhaps you're single by choice, happy to be single, not wounded by marriage, just not interested. Why should you care about this text? Here's where I'm going. Marriage is a drama, don't hear melodrama, that we have the privilege of enacting together as a whole church. Not only privately in our individual marriages. We have a part in this drama, whether or not we have a starring role or a speaking role. If my daughter was here, was here uh, she's a uh, rancher's wife out in Montana. She would tell you that when she was grown up, she loved to be in the plays, but they would always make her the props person. You know, she always wanted to have a speaking role, or a singing role, or a dancing role, and they made her the props person, and that was a bit of an offense on a regular basis. 
you may not have a starring role or a speaking role, if you will, in the drama of marriage. Yes. Or maybe you used to and don't anymore. But this drama of marriage that we get to put on in God's church, so important that it's a culmination and climax of the creation event, is one that takes all of us to do. In whatever state we find ourselves regarding our own personal marriage, or that of our parents that we're still trying to sort out. Now, I know this claim isn't obvious yet. I have a case. I understand that, but I ask for permission to make that statement prior to hearing this text read out. And so if you would open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, with that as an introduction, let's hear what God says. Now remember, this comes at the end of six days of creation, in which God says it's all great. Very good. And now he retells the story just from the perspective of Adam. And then we see in Genesis 2, 18, these words. Then Yahweh God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And now out of the ground, Yahweh God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heaven, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam was not found a helper fit for him. So, Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of the ribs, and he closed up the flesh in that place, and out of the rib, the Lord God fashioned a woman, and he brought her to the man to... He brought it to the man, and the man said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Now, the man and his wife were both naked, but they were not ashamed. Father, as we approach this text, a text that we've all heard before, probably, a text that we've heard talked about at weddings, thought about in other contexts, almost wrung out dry. I pray we would meet you. And I pray that we would meet a new desire for the privilege of enacting this drama in the way you intend with the meaning that you've already given it. May we hear from your spirit and know you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. One more thing. I'm going to assume that we don't only have some here who are still single or who have become single or marriage wounded, but I'm going to assume too there's some not yet Christians here. I hope that's the case. And if you are, I hope you already know that you are welcome, not just by me and not just by these people, but by God himself. You're in the right place. But what's in this for you? Because you're hearing a Christian preacher talk about a Christian book, a book that's been around for a long time, but 
maybe one that you don't see yet. May God help you as authoritative. But what would this matter? Especially if I'm talking about marriage for Christians. If you're not yet a Christian, does this matter to you? I want to tell you, marriage was given by God, notice, to people before there were ever Jews or Christians. Before they were ever called in a particular way as his people, now Adam is his. He was the son of God. But God hadn't yet formed the Israelites. He hadn't yet formed the church. He hadn't yet died for the church of Jesus Christ. And at that time, God gave marriage to all people. So it's a gift to the whole culture, even those who are not married. Again, I'll get back to that. But moreover, if you're inclined to listen closely, you will learn something about God that I hope, and I pray, and I have prayed for you, that will make you want to know Him more. That will say, if that's God, if that's what He's doing with marriage, I want to know Him. That's my desire for you. So I think it's worth listening, I think. What I want us all to see is this. All the rules you've heard about marriage, I suspect most, maybe all, are true, especially if it came from the Bible, but I'm not talking about rules today. As you've already heard, I'm talking about a drama. As Sam already warned me, watch out for the drama stuff, they won't know what you're talking about. Look, every time you get up, you're putting on a drama. Your kids put on a drama, if you're a parent, you know that. You are too. And the way you and I live, when we get up in the morning, first we put on whatever uniform we want. I see I'm the only guy with this kind of uniform, but you know, that's what I put on. I've been doing it for many, many years. So I put on my costume, you put on your costume. We all come together, and with those costumes on, we believe that life is about something, and we put on that drama. So today, I am not here to talk about the rules of marriage. I'm not here to call you to repentance over messing up in your marriage. Uh, maybe you should. That's not why I'm here. I'm here to invite you to put on a drama, a particular drama that has to do with marriage, as a get-to privilege. And the get-to privilege is this. I am going to make a claim that marriage displays the image of God that is going to show us even in our fallible, messy way of trying to put on the drum, it's going to show us and the world the very nature, one, two, and character of God. If we see that together, then we'll talk about the opportunity to participate in it, how we would do that, single to marry. That's where we're going. So first, marriage displays God's image, his very nature. Now see this, it will help to understand that this text is the, the conclusion and climax to the creation story. As I mentioned, it's the main point, not a, like, okay, we're done with that, let's move on. It may be hard to believe, like I said before, especially if you read Genesis, like I've done, my background is physics, you know, you want to read Genesis to say, how did he do it? How long were the days? Where are the dinosaurs? Yeah, keep doing that, that's fine. Sam has all the answers on those questions. <laughs> if he doesn't, check with Ross and Daniel. <laughs> I love the creation story. I love the grandeur and majesty, because it is physics. I mean, you know, in heaven, you'll all be doing physics. I 
seems to do his work effortlessly. I love that God speaks, and in speaking, he creates whole worlds. I love that we're introduced to a God who works with no competition. I mean, you know, if you've read this before, that evil's coming. But there's no evil in the world. He just does it. Nobody's working against him. I love that at the center of God's heart, right from the beginning, is people. People. Now, God's greatest delight and glory is, of course, himself, but what he said is, I want to create people who are so much like me. They can fully delight in me. And that's where the creation story is going. And so, toward the end, today in particular, I, I want you to see Moses' conclusion that shows us that unless he had done this, unless we got to this part of the story, God could have had what he set out to do. This is how God says, what I want, here's how he get it. Now it helps us to notice that God himself says this. You heard it. You remember from before, but you realize how weird it is? Then Yahweh God said, verse 18, it is not good for man to be alone. So strange. When he just said, good, 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 very good. Where is this coming from? Is God disagreeing with himself? Well, no. But he is giving us a real pause here to say, Given what my goals are, I'm not there yet. If I were to stop here, it wouldn't be good. I mean, part of the problem is Adam's a guy and he didn't know he needed to marry You know, this is kind of like the single guy that says, yeah, I'm doing fine. Or it's like the religious guy that says, God and me, it's just great. That's all I need is me and God. Adam had God. God had Adam. And Adam thought it was perfect. It was. But it wasn't perfect for where God wanted to get, and Adam needed to hear that, like fingers on a chalkboard. Do you know what a chalkboard is? <laughs> like fingers on a chalkboard. God says, not good. There's another reason this is strange. If you think God is only one, it should be really good for Adam to be alone. If you think God is this monolithic being who had no one to love and he made Adam so he could love him, then you don't understand God. Nor would this text make sense, because if God is only alone, how would he even know it was wrong for Adam to be alone? What could he say other than, this is really perfect? <clears throat> to know why, we can already know that God wasn't saying, I'm only one. Listen just a couple of hints from this text. Again, maybe you have already sorted this out, but at least notice just for a minute. In chapter 1, verse 2, you can go there quick, but I'm just going to tell you about it. Both Elohim, God, and the Spirit of God are both having specific actions regarding creation. God's doing speaking, and the Spirit is doing the hovering over the waters, gestating. Notice, too, in the same two verses, God, through Moses, introduces himself as Elohim. Uh, you probably haven't spent a lot of time in commentaries, but if you did, you wouldn't see that that's plural. 
That's the great high gods. Now, we've heard that, even if you speak only English, of course, you've heard that Elohim comes up singing, right? We sing the songs. So we get used to it. But where did that idea of a plural God come from? I mean, it should surprise us. Some of you will say, well, you know, kings always refer to themselves as plural. Why? Because they're imitating God. Because God introduced himself from the beginning as plural, and men spoke about two different things he was doing as Father and as Spirit. Third, maybe more disconcerting, God calls himself plural several times. And we see it in chapters 1, 2, and 3, where he says something like, let us. I'll let you go find this. All three chapters. Let us. Where's that coming from? I've seen some weird ideas by Bible teachers that say that there's this council in heaven of you know God-like beings or maybe even other gods baloney. Because let us create man in our image. The only image we're in is the image of Yahweh, Elohim. We're not in the image of some council of gods. So that doesn't work. God is not only one, but in some way. He's also plural. I'm going to use the phrase one and many. Because even at this point, we don't know one and three. We'll find that out in the New Testament. But we're only in chapter two, and we know he's one and many. God's opening himself up to us. Now, let's think about the first account of creation. Why then do we have a problem? In that first account of creation, this God who is one and many makes two. Man and woman. Let us make man in our image, so he made them. Male and female, he made them. Interesting. So there's two at the end of chapter one. But there's more work to do. So he goes to the second story, and what do we have in the second story? God makes Adam, chapter two, verses six through eight, makes another play, breathing into his nostrils the breath of life, and Adam becomes a living being. But there's only one. So at the end of two, or at the end of one, we have two. I mean, I knew I'd get that wrong. At the end of two, we've got one. And then God says, it's not good. Are you beginning to get it? You see where the author is going, what he's driving us to? The creation of God, which is to culminate in an image bearer, isn't right with two and isn't right with one. So he's got to bring us to the conclusion. Here's his solution. He brings all the animals before Adam, and surprisingly, since it was God's suggestion, I'm going to make animals, bring them before you, surprisingly, none of them work. I mean, if it was God's idea, it shouldn't have worked. The other surprise is, in heaven, God frustrated Adam. I mean, Adam was fine, no frustration. Brings all these animals before him, names them, and he's now frustrated. Now he's bringing with God. This isn't good. That's weird in heaven. How do you deal with that? I'm going to say there's holy frustration. When God leads us to want something he wants, I'll give you the desires of my heart, because I'll make them yours. And man discovered a couple of things. One of them is he had a new desire, and two, the dog is not man's best friend. So how does God solve the problem? He becomes the father of the bride. He gives 
her birth out of Adam's side. Augustine said, not his head, that she would rule over him, and not his feet, that she would be under him, but from his side. And he brings her to the man, and as we regularly see in any marriage, that I'm a part of at least, she takes on his name. My name is man. Your name should be woman. By the way, that works in Hebrew and English as a pun. She takes his name. Second, he takes vows. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Uh, some people write to take that to say, yeah, she's different than the animals. And that's right. He's recognizing her as like him. But you know, he's saying something more. We had time to go to Ephesians 5, but Paul exegetes these vows in Ephesians 5 as your vows. You, husband, shall give your body for the good of this woman. Whatever costs you in pain, you will give to her. That she will become like God. That she will be fit and delighting, fit for heaven and delighting in God. Will you give yourself to her? That's his vow. And then, then there's a, a sermon. I mean, I always give a sermon at the wedding. So that's what we have in chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore... That's what a sermon is. It says, let me explain. You just heard this said, now let me tell you what it means and what you're going to have to do about it. And God gives a sermon, or Moses does. He says, let a man leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. By the way, who's this sermon to? It's not to Adam and Eve. They didn't have a mother or father. So God's preaching to us through Moses. There's something we're to understand about what marriage means. And what he says here is they will hold fast to the wife, he will hold fast to his wife, and he says they will become one flesh. Or it says in the translation that Jesus used, the two will become one. When Jesus quotes this in Matthew, he says that three times. If you want to know something that's important, watch the things that are repeated in Scripture. Holy, holy, holy. This is one of those. When he's debating about the meaning of marriage, he says the two should become one. The two should become one. Do not let man separate what God has put together. Another way to say the same thing. I'm going to tell you that the two should become one is the highlight of this text. Just to drive it to the end, notice the next verse. The man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. This is like when the the pastor turns the bride and groom around and presents them to the congregation. Though we look much more hastily today than maybe they did in the garden. I don't think that would work today the way they did it. <laughs> Two should become one. Now the not good is rectified. Why have we gotten to the culmination here? What does this mean to us? What does God want from us? What is supposed to learn from this now that he's come to this great high point. It's this. In marriage, you and I now have the privilege of actually having a Trinitarian display. The two, newest marriage, I know, so you and Charlotte, where she, she was up there. I lost her. She was right Okay, I thought I saw you You were were hungry down. In marrying, Ross and Charlotte put on one small part of the drama where now they're Ross and Charlotte. We still know them as 
by name, like Adam and Eve still had individual names, but they're one. And their marriage, I don't say their wedding only, their marriage is now part of this display of the nature of who God is that all the world can see and scratch their head and say, is the world really that way? Is God really that way? Okay, that's half. Second thing. Marriage displays God's character by imaging it in us. I'm amazed that marriage is so important to God that he does make it the conclusion of this story. But I'm also amazed that after the fall, which comes next, and I know that's going to be preached later, so I'm just robbing a few things from it. Are you on for this one? Who's going to do this one? Genesis 3. Sam, okay, I don't care about messing up with Sam. <laughs> so, but I want to take a little from this. He turns to the woman after the fall, and he's now confronted them, and then he turns to the serpent, and he says, well, first of all, I will surely multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, but your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and even yet he will rule over you. I don't want to get into the full exegesis of this. It's worth it, but I just want you to notice one thing. God didn't end the marriage. Not only did he not end the marriage, but he said every marriage is going to point forward to something else. This is the first expression of the fact that Jesus is going to come. Now, you've got to see the second part when he talks to the serpent. To understand this part A. But then he goes on to the serpent. And what we hear is there's going to be a contest between you and the woman's seed. He or you will bruise his heel, but he will bruise, and later I'll change that to crush, in Romans 16, your head. Those two texts together, instead of destroying marriage, tell us something amazing about God, that God is faithful to his covenants. And every day, your marriage survives. You are proclaiming God's faithfulness to his covenants. I'm stunned and then patience with me for 45 years. She knows at that time, when we were both in college at Wheaton, that she was taking on a difficult task. I can be a handful and opinionated and difficult. But every day we put on that drama, painfully at times, we've declared the reality of God being faithful to his covenant. By the way, this goes all the way through the Bible. Esther, for example, starts with a divorce and moves to a marriage. Ruth starts with marriages, then widowhood, and ends with marriage. Song of Solomon is a book of the betrayal by poetry of a betrothal and a marriage, and then problems in that marriage. Hosea is a story of a marriage that was a drama by design, very explicitly, they all are. This one very explicitly, go marry a woman who's already a prostitute and have three children by her. He names these children Massacre, No Mercy, and Not My People. Try calling them home for supper. <laughs> Gomer left Hosea for better lovers. And the story is about this. It comes 
Pete, not at the end, but in 214 out of 14 chapters, I believe this is the, the culmination. This tells you everything about what this story means. God says, you have run after all of your lovers. You have abandoned me. And now he's talking to Israel and making the point of this drama that Hosea has been living. And then he gets another therefore. Remember I told you whenever there's a therefore, it's not merely an exclamation like this is a sermon. And he says, therefore, what do you think is going to follow? You've abandoned me and gone after the Baals and your other lovers. What's God going to do now? I, I'm going to crush you. I'm going to abandon you. I'm going to allure you. Draw you out into the desert and speak tenderly to you. Where's this from? It's from the very heart of God. It's the intent, if you will, of every marriage. Jose is only one book, but I, I assure you, this is the message all the way through. In fact, if you are a not yet Christian here this morning, marriage, those that fail and those that succeed, are still a human call to you to see the God who never gives up. The God who is actually pursuing you right now. Through this message, through these friends, that you might see, know, and delight in this God who is by nature one in many and who is by character faithful to his covenant, which says he died on the cross so he could make this offer to you come and be mine again. The divorce is not permanent. Yes, I divorce you, but I pay so you can come back and live forever with me. That's what every marriage is a reminder of the weakest ones and the best ones. Adam and Eve are the first couple, and yes, their marriage is torn apart by sin. Eve's deception, Adam's rebellion. And then God challenges them, and they're divided by defensiveness and by deception. But again, I want you to hear this verse, which is in chapter 3, verse 20. Just to be echoing. Then the man called his wife Habah, Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. Now, I read that verse, I don't know, 600 times growing up. Had to hear it many times a year. I just nodded. Yeah, that's, that's what happens in the story. Until it hit me. What this means. This woman who has just betrayed him, she was deceived. I mean, you gotta wonder, here's a piece of fruit, an apple, with a bite out of it. And she says, want some? I mean, what was in Adam's mind when he saw that? And he ate it. And now they're both being, if you will, chased through the garden by the east wind of God on the judgment. And though they're clothed, already clothed in leaves, they felt naked. I mean, remember, they weren't saying we're naked and we hid until after they had their fig leaf suits. And God comes, and after God speaks these words of judgment, Adam's first action is to be the king who names. And this woman, who had been 
named after man, Ish and Isha, he says, you've got a new name. Because you are the mother of all the living. Do you realize that he's doing, he's believing God is faithful to his covenants? So much so that he names his wife for the very act of restoration that will come through her. He believes immediately. And he reinvests her with the dignity of being a woman that God used to bring about salvation. Right here. The first meaning of marriage is we get to display the very nature of God as one and many. He's not one and also many. He's not many and also one. He is indiscernibly both one and many. Kind of like you in your marriage or that of your friends your parents, even weakness. Second, we, we get the privilege, sinners that we are, of saying God is faithful to his covenants, and so I will be. I mean, what are the choices that were before Adam and Eve that should have been the first divorce or the first murder? That waited some decades. Marriage is a conclusion to God's story. I, I want you to see that the Bible doesn't just open here and ends here. You know that? I hope so. I won't have you turn there this morning just for time. But I want you to know that we get to Revelation 19, 21, and 22. What we are going to see is that Jesus comes back for his bride, and that bride is you. Unfaithful as we've been, he is faithful. And he said, Rick, you're a mess. I died to put my name in you. In fact, you are going to be the spotless, this is weird, virgin bride. I mean, you can't be virgin. But God does. And he says, I look at you. And because of Christ, his death, his resurrection, you are my virgin bride. And we will be presented to Jesus in our white robes, which are made white by the blood of the Lamb who died for us and rose again. And he's looking forward to that day. In fact, he's fasting from wine. We're going to drink wine and grape juice. I don't know what church had in. I mean, <laughs> he says, I will drink wine again until heaven. It's going to offend all the Baptists, but he's going to do it. <laughs> he is so eager. He's, he's fasting, hungry to be with you, and he's going to serve you. Gospel of John, he's going to kneel down and serve you at this wedding feast. So now what? What do we do with this? Marriage, your marriage, the marriages of your friends, the marriages of your parents, the marriage you hope for yourself that you don't have yet, the marriage that you don't want, and maybe never will have. You've heard it said that marriage is about kids. I say yes. That's exactly what Moses said in Genesis chapter 1. He said nothing about kids in Genesis 2. Genesis 2 is about the drama that you can put on, which, by God's grace, usually includes also kids. And we should see children as an image of, like seeds, 
of how God will bring more to Christ through you. But what's the drama you put on? What is the first drama you and I have the privilege of enacting? Forget the rules. I mean, not quite. Don't, don't forget them. They are rules. But here, that the rules are more like, if you want to put on this drama, these, this is the, these are the instructions for putting this drama on. And think of the privilege of being in the drama, wanting to be part of the drama that God's doing. And then when you put on this drama of showing God is one in many, and when you put on this drama of showing God is faithful to his covenants, when you are faithful to your spouse, who even short of sexual unfaithfulness, your spouse will disappoint you every day. And sometimes you'll even be right that they're wrong. Not always, but sometimes. And that's true. And you're sure they're just wrong, mistreating you, unkind of you. Will you be like God? And will you, like Adam, say, we're in this drama, and I'm giving you the starting role for the first half of the drama? The first half of the drama, the starting role, is the women who are giving birth to the seed saying, is this the one? And for those of you who are not married, now it means something very different. Because sure, God may or may not want you to get married, you may not want to get married or not, but every day as part of this drama the church is putting on, you get to decide, do I support the marriages of my friends around me, or do I undermine them? Do I sit and listen to complaints about their husband and say, yeah, he's a jerk, you should get rid of him? Go to any small group in America, complain about your spouse if they're not there especially, and you're going to get sympathetic people who say, you deserve better. You said that to somebody that's married? I mean, in a sense, of course they deserve better. But how about you deserve better, but you're doing something greater? See, the singles have an opportunity actually to encourage the marriages around them. Are you flirting as a single with somebody that's married? Oh, it's harmless. It's not going beyond flirting. It's not in the script. You don't flirt to Baal. That's what God said. And Baal was all about fertility and sex. Everybody has a part in this drama. Are you married? Do you get the get to? Of showing off God? Marriage is the first gift of God and the last event in time. What you are doing, even if your marriage is a struggle at times, and even if marriage has disappointed you, matters deeply to God. And you know who's the audience of this drama first? God. Father, help me as a sinner to put on this drama well. I have a love for you and a delight in you that goes deeper than me. To have Adam's faith to name his wife Ahava, the living one. She was, now, with never having had kids, the mother of all the living. That's what he said. He saw it. You announced it. He believed it. Will we treat our spouses like that? Will we treat you like that? Will we give up speaking disparagingly of this wonderful thing that represents our salvation? Will we be patient with our spouse when we know we're disappointed? 
have a right to say that hurt. You were wrong. But will we love them not because we ought? Well, that too. But primarily because of that privilege? Help us to see you anew and to see you. Amen.